0: I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories.
1: Listener discretion is advised. In July 1986, 11-year-old Allison Perraud lived in Toronto, Ontario. Her father, Peter, was a civil engineer, and her mother, Leslie, was an advertising executive. Allison had a little brother, eight year old Callum. The family lived in the affluent Rosedale neighborhood in Toronto. Rosedale is just not one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Toronto, but in all of Canada It's north of downtown Toronto, and it's one of the city's oldest neighborhoods. At the time, Toronto had a population of 2.2 million and was considered a safe city. By the end of July 1986, the city had only experienced 23 murders that year. Some American cities with similar populations had murder rates in the triple digits in the same amount of time. Because of its low crime rate, Toronto was sometimes called Toronto the Good. But Peter and Leslie weren't naive and knew just because crimes didn't happen often in Toronto didn't mean that they lived in some crime-free utopia. A year earlier, they sent Allison and Callum for a day-long seminar called Street Proofing. It taught children about potential dangers and how to avoid them. Allison was a very bright young girl. She was enrolled in French Immersion and she was a year ahead. Allison was also a good kid who rarely disobeyed her parents in any serious way. She always told her parents where she was going and if plans changed, she called them. Since she was so responsible, she had a lot of independence. In the fourth grade, she started taking the subway to school by herself. She also babysat some children in her neighborhood. Allison was a very talented runner, and she belonged to a running club. That summer, Allison qualified for an international track and field meet in Plainfield, New Jersey. She was going to represent Ontario in the 800, 1500, and 3000 meter events. After she qualified, her name was printed in Canada's biggest newspaper, the Toronto Star. On the morning of July 25th, 1986, 11-year-old Allison was home alone. Her parents were at work and her little brother was out of town. At about 10.30am, Allison got a phone call. It was a man who said he was a sports photographer. He wanted to take photos of Allison and her running team at the University of Toronto's varsity stadium. Allison had trained at the stadium the previous fall, so she knew the area. Allison told the man that she would have to check with her mother. The man told her that was fine and he would call back in a few minutes. Allison called her mother, Leslie, at work and told her about the photo shoot. Allison said that her other teammates were going to be there. Leslie's mother wasn't too worried about the photo shoot especially if her teammates were going to be there. She was also meeting the photographer in a public place downtown in the middle of the day. Also, the call didn't come out of the blue. Eleven days earlier, a man claiming to be a photographer called the family's home looking for Allison. He said he was from a local newspaper or magazine and wanted to take photos of Allison. At the time, Allison was away at summer camp and the man spoke with the babysitter looking after Allison's brother. Local media had also interviewed Allison before regarding her running. So Leslie decided to let Allison go to the stadium. Allison and Leslie reviewed what route she would take to get there. It was four subway stops. It would take about 20 minutes to get there. After Allison and Leslie spoke, the man called back. Sometime between 11 and 11.30 a.m., Allison walked out the back door of her home. At 2.30 p.m., Leslie called home and no one answered. When Leslie got home at about 5 o'clock and Allison wasn't there, her uneasiness grew exponentially. Allison was incredibly responsible, so Leslie thought she'd be at home or she would have called to say where she was.
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: And now, back to our episode. Around 6 p.m., Leslie and Peter reported their 11-year-old daughter missing. The police quickly concluded that Allison was not some troubled runaway who might return. They immediately started looking for her, and they released her photo to the media. The 10 p.m. news aired a story about her. The police and volunteers searched throughout the night. The next day, hundreds of people helped search for her. More searches were conducted the next day after that. Around 6.30pm that day, July 27th, two boys were walking in a wooded park near the Humber River about six miles east of Allison's home. The area is a known lover's lane. In some bushes, curled up in a field position, they found the new dead body of 11-year-old Allison Parad. She had been bound and raped. The cause of death was ligature strangulation. The police launched one of the biggest investigations in the history of Ontario. Several people said that they remember seeing Allison on the subway. Close to R.C. Stadium was a bank that had a security camera that snapped photos every few seconds. In one of these photos, taken at 11.28 a.m., the police are sure they see Allison, even though they can't see her face. But based on the description of her clothes and her purse, they are sure it is her. The police believe that she met with her kidnapper minutes after the photo was taken. The police concluded that the killer had been stalking Allison for some time. Before she was kidnapped, other props in the phone book had been called by a man looking for Allison. Also, he knew Allison's private life well enough to create a story to lure her out of the house. The police also didn't think it was a coincidence that he called Allison when she was home alone. She often cared for her brother during the summer, but he was out of town when the man called. Leslie Prad thought that the killer was connected to Allison's running somehow. He knew that she was a runner and asked her to come to a place where she had trained. Unfortunately, the police didn't have many clues to go on. The police weren't sure if Allison was killed where her body was found or if she was just dumped there after she was killed. Her clothes have never been found. People noticed similarities between Allison's kidnapping and the plot of an Ed McBain novel. In McBain's 1984 novel, Lightning, a serial killer is stalking college track stars. He lures them by saying he's a sports reporter for a magazine and he wants to interview them. However, the police had no idea if the book inspired the killer or if it was just a disturbing coincidence. The murder shocked not just the people of Toronto, but many people in Canada. There were renewed calls to reinstate the death penalty. Canada had abolished the death penalty 10 years earlier in 1976. No one had been executed in Canada since December 1962. But in the wake of their daughter's kidnapping and murder, Leslie spoke out against the death penalty. Something else she rejected was fear-based street proofing She thought in the wake of her daughter's murder, more parents were becoming helicopter parents and wouldn't let their children do things like go out to the playground. Leslie didn't want her daughter's murder to rob other children of their childhood. She didn't think that children needed to fear every stranger they encountered. This type of stranger danger panic was whipped up in the 1980s after a slew of high-profile child abductions and murders. Clearly, these crimes are deplorable and shocking. Since they are so shocking, they were featured prominently in the news. But the truth is that a child being murdered by strangers is a relatively uncommon crime throughout the world. Children are more likely to be killed by their parents. In fact, 56 to 58% of child murders are committed by their parents. But we would never dream of separating all children from their parents because of these stats. Another example is drowning deaths. According to the Center for Disease Control, more children ages 1 to 4 die from drowning than from any other cause of death except birth defects. For children ages 1 to 14, drowning is the second leading cause of unintentional injury death after motor vehicle crashes. Yet, we don't stop children from going swimming. Instead, we try to make things safer for children regarding water safety. When it comes to child murders, it's easy to get emotional and react based on those emotions. It could have been very easy for Leslie Peratt to do that. She certainly understood the fear and the rage. After all, she lost her beautiful daughter in one of the most brutal and barbaric ways possible. Instead, Leslie wanted to make it safer for children to be out in public. So Leslie and her marketing firm created a series of public service announcements aimed at children called Stay Alert, Stay Safe. They were released in May 1987. The animated PSAs were aired on television, teachers showed them at school, and VHS tapes were given out. Canadian Tire Stores. Stay Alert, Stay Safe features two rabbits, Bert and Gert, who look at possible scenarios where kids could find themselves in danger. Here's a sample of one of the PSAs.
0: Hey there, Sonny. How do you get to Albany Avenue? What should you do if someone stops to talk or ask directions? Most strangers are nice people. But some strangers want
1: to hurt kids.
0: So you've always got to be on your toes.
1: Let's see how Daniel handles it.
0: So what do you say, Sonny? Two blocks that way and turn right. Can't miss it. Well, would you show me the way? Sorry, I've got to get home. Oh, I can drive you. Sorry. Way to be, Daniel. Give me five. Hi, Gert. Hi, Bert. You handled that just right. Yeah, if a stranger stops to talk, always keep your distance. And never, ever go anywhere with a stranger. Got it? What? Work it. Stay stay safe.
1: The PSAs were immensely popular and influenced a generation of children in Ontario. It also has a catchy jingle that is hard to forget even decades later. If you know someone who grew up in Ontario during the late 80s and early 90s and you ask them to finish the jingle, Stay alert, there's a good chance they'll say, Stay safe. Leslie said that the PSAs gave meaning to Allison's life. It's the way I've continued to be her mother. Unfortunately, not much progress was made on Allison's case. Over the years, the police followed up on thousands of leads. But no arrests were made. In 1993, a DNA profile from the rape kit was created but the police didn't have a match to the DNA. Canada wouldn't get a national database for offenders until 2000. So the case continued to stick hold. However, in 1989, four years before the DNA profile was created, an unusual chain of seemingly unconnected events came together that led to the case being solved. It started when a man was arrested for shoplifting 2,600 miles away from Toronto, in Vancouver, British Columbia. The man was on parole, and the police questioned him. At the time, the police in Vancouver were dealing with a rash of missing and murdered sex workers. The man said that they should investigate Francis Carl Roy. Roy was a member of the man's sexual deviance support group. Things Roy said had disturbed the man, and he thought... That he might be capable of murder. The detectives wrote up a four page report on Roy. He was born in September 1957. In 1981, he was convicted of raping a 19 year old woman in Toronto and he was sentenced to six years of prison. While in prison, he was convicted of another rape he committed before he was sent to prison. The victim was 14 years old. Another five years were tacked on to his sentence but then he appealed his sentence was dropped to eight and a half years of prison. By 1986 he was out on parole. In both cases he had lied to his victims to lure them to an isolated area. He strangled or suffocated both of his victims. He also raped both outdoors. Roy came to Vancouver from Toronto in mid-1988. The detectives passed the information on to the detectives investigating the missing and murdered sex workers. But those detectives didn't investigate Roy. However, the two detectives decided to keep an eye on Roy. In 1991, Roy was in a bar fight and nearly killed a man with a piece of wood. After the fight, Roy's girlfriend's father bought Roy a one-way ticket from back to Toronto. The detectives never forgot about Francis Roy. In the 1990s, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police developed a computer system called the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System, also known as ViClass. class FI class was created to find serial crimes and criminals based on elements of the crime. It's similar to the FBI's violent criminal apprehension program, also known as FICAP. FI class was the most sophisticated system of its kind at the time. It was even better than ViCAP. In 1997, the two detectives were taking a class about serial offenders that was taught by a detective. Who worked in the Vi-Class unit. They gave her the report on Francis Roy. She input the information into Viclass. It connected Roy to a cold case. That was the murder of Allison Perot. So she called the police in Toronto and told them to look at Roy as a suspect. It turned out that the police had already interviewed Roy regarding Alison's murder and he was considered a person of interest back in 1986. Roy was an avid runner, and he ran marathons. He had trained at the same facility as Allison, often on the same days. He also ran through the woods, where her body was found. Roy also lived just a few blocks from R.C. Stadium, which is where she went missing. The police also knew that he was a convicted rapist and on parole. It turned out that two days after Allison went missing, the day her body was found, Roy had turned himself in to the police. He told the police he had lured a woman into his apartment and tried to smother her with a pillow. He pleaded guilty to that crime in October. He was sentenced to five weeks in jail, which turned out to be time served and fined $200. When the police questioned him about Allison's murder, He said that morning he had gone for a run. He spent the rest of the day with his girlfriend. The police were able to confirm his alibi. They also had no physical evidence tying him to the crime. But now the police had the DNA profile, so they decided to look at Francis Roy again as a suspect. On June 14, 1996, the police started to trail Roy. A few weeks later, an officer followed Roy into a bar where he had a cigarette and a beer. The officer collected the cigarette butt and the bottle of beer. DNA was found on the cigarette butt and it was compared to the DNA from semen on Allison's body. Ten years to the day Allison was kidnapped, The investigators got the results of the DNA testing. It was a match. On July 31st, 1996, Francis Roy was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He was interrogated that day. This is audio from his interrogation. First, you'll hear the investigator.
0: Okay, as I I indicated to you... uh... I'll say something.
1: I did not kill her. He repeated that lie more than 400 times during the eight-hour interrogation.
0: Never, ever met her. Never, ever met her. Never, never, um, never come across her as, you know. Never come across her. Never. How does your DNA profile get in Mm -hmm. through the vaginal swabs from semen left behind? Okay, I don't want, to. How does that happen, sir? I did not kill her. I'll explain that. Was it an accident then? No, it has nothing to do with an accident. I did not kill her.
1: Then, he says...
0: The body was already there. Mm-hmm. He said it, the body was already there. Yeah, the body was already there. I did not kill her. I did not kill her.
1: Roy then starts to give an analogy about a cat. When you grab a cat
0: by his tail and you swing it around, you look back, now as an adult, and you do back then, you shouldn't have done it. Right. Really? Meantime, the cat runs around and gets hit by a car. Right. If you're guilty of pulling the tail. Yeah, yes.
1: Not for killing the cat. No. It seems like Roy is trying to use this analogy to prove he didn't kill her, but it confuses the investigator.
0: Okay, so you're saying that you're not not being blamed for killing the cat, but the cat got on the road as a result of your actions. Am I correct in that? No, you're not correct. Okay, what do you mean then? I may be missing something. The cat could have already been dead before I pulled the tail. Yes. That's a scenario.
1: Okay. A scenario that suggested to the police they did something sexual with Allison's dead body. The cat was dead.
0: Pardon me? The
1: cat was dead.
0: The cat was dead. You, put, you pull the cat by the tail, tail the, car, the, cat, the cat gets by a car. The cat was already dead. Right. I did not kill her. And I'll explain more of that later, but I did not kill her. I may be guilty of something else, but I did not kill her.
1: 41-year-old Francis Carl Roy went to trial in March 1999. The jury was not allowed to hear that Roy was convicted of rape twice before. Roy's defense lawyer presented a theory about how the semen was found on the vaginal swab. He said that when Roy woke up that morning, he masturbated... He then went for a run. While in the park, he had to urinate, so he stopped at a bush. He wasn't circumcised, so he pulled his foreskin back, and then he got semen on his finger that was left over from his masturbation session. He then happened to see the body of a young girl. He walked over to the body and put his finger in her vagina. The lawyer said it was a horrible and disgusting act, but it did not mean that he killed Allison Peratt. The trial lasted a little over a month. With the DNA evidence, it was expected to be a quick verdict. But the jury ended up deliberating for six days. But then, 13 years after Allison's brutal murder, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Francis Roy was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole for 25 years so he'll be able to apply for parole in 2024. Roy was never connected to the murders of the sex workers in Vancouver. Robert Picton was arrested for those murders in 2002 and convicted of six of them in 2007. However, it's believed Robert Picton killed nearly 50 women. Leslie Perrault continues to be an advocate against the death penalty in Canada. She was also featured in the documentary, Forgiveness, Stories for Our Time. In the 2007 documentary, she talks about how she learned to forgive the man who murdered her daughter. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.